Our gospel reading this morning is from the book of John, a short teaching from Jesus as he walks with his disciples. As he walked along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. May God continue to bless our understanding of this sacred text. Will you pray with me? O gracious and loving God, may the meditations of all our hearts and minds and souls be pleasing unto you this day and always. Amen. An African-American minister from the Baptist tradition, a Catholic priest from the Archdiocese of Chicago, the mayor of Skokie, one of the most diverse communities in the country, so diverse, in fact, that the hospital in Skokie has translators available in 50 different languages. A Japanese woman who survived the Japanese internment camps, camps here in the United States during World War II. A Muslim, Chicago area doctor who has traveled to Syria numerous times and been under fire by Syrian and Russian jets, snipers, and bomb-dropping helicopters to treat the wounded especially children, at a secret field hospital in the basement of a half-destroyed building. A female Protestant minister and six Jewish survivors of the Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. This group had gathered together in all its diversity, must surely be God's vision of the kingdom on earth. This eclectic group had gathered to be part of the remembrance of this night in Germany, the night of broken glass, 79 years ago, when Germans terrorized the Jews of Germany. In just two days, over 250 synagogues were burned, over 7,000 Jewish businesses were trashed and looted, approximately 90 Jewish people were killed, and Jewish cemeteries, hospitals, schools, and homes were looted while police and fire brigades stood by. The morning after these programs, 30,000 German men, were, Jewish men, were arrested for the crime of being Jewish and sent to concentration camps, where hundreds of them perished. And as we all know, this was only the beginning of the Holocaust that claimed the lives of up to six million Jews simply because they were Jewish. Perhaps the disciples would have asked Jesus, why were the Jews persecuted? Was it because of their sins or the sins of their fathers? Tell us, Jesus, who is to blame? And just as Jesus replied to this question about the blind beggar, Jesus points out that who to blame is not the point. How shall we heal? That is the point. Just as Jesus taught the disciples that day to heal the blind man, we too, as Christ's disciples, are called to heal. But oh, how really easy it is for us to rush to the point and point fingers of blame. Just look at the individuals that were gathered to read the atrocities of the Kristallnacht. <coughs> the Catholic Church was blamed for decades for their silence during the Holocaust, and perhaps rightly so, but the blaming did nothing to heal the wounds. The tremendous work of reconciliation and healing is what has been important. 
Imagine the residents of Skokie and all their varied native languages being told that they should just learn English if they want to immigrate to the US. Should we blame them or heal them? And then there is, of course, all the blaming that we do regarding racism in our country. How many times have you heard that if blacks would just forget the atrocities of slavery or just get a good education or just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, that would end racism? It's called blaming the victim rather than offering healing for the systemic causes of racism that is so prevalent in our, company, in our country. And the Japanese woman, children and men on our own soil who were blamed and then locked away as prisoners because of the actions of their military. And because of the actions of a few, we seem to want to blame and accuse all Muslims of, as violent terrorists. But in the last year alone, more Americans have been killed in attacks by white American men with no connection to Islam than by Muslim terrorists or foreigners. In fact, between 2001 and 2015, more Americans were killed by homegrown white-wing extremists than by Islamist terrorists. And ask any woman who has had the courage to come forth and share their story of being raped how they will likely have been accused of the rape being their fault because of something they had worn that day or perhaps because they had had a drink at a party. And the disciples may have asked Jesus, are all of these people to blame because of their sins or the sins of their fathers? And Jesus would have said once more, we are not called to blame, we are called to heal. Or as one theologian says, we spend a lot of energy wondering who can be blamed for our own or other people's tragedies. Our parents, ourselves, the immigrants, the Jews, the gays, the blacks, the fundamentalists, the Catholics. There is a strange satisfaction in being able to point our finger at someone, but Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. He asks us to solve it through healing. The challenge he poses is to discern in the midst of our darkness the light of God. And the light of God shines forth most brightly when Jesus sends out his disciples to heal. From the very beginning, Jesus calls his disciples to minister with and to others. It has been said that discipleship is the overflow of your love for God and for your fellow human beings. Or said another way, discipleship is when two people toast their glasses of wine and something splashes over. Well, that splashing wine, that overflow of love for and from God, is our call to move from blame to action. Or as the African proverb teaches, when you pray, move your feet. There's been a lot of chatter in the news and social media recently about the offering of our thoughts and prayers in a crisis. Yes, of course we need to pray and offer sincere empathy. But when we are capable of doing more, which most of us are, we are called to respond, to move, as was so beautifully sung, to do something. As Alexander Campbell, one of the founders of the Disciples of Christ, said, anything for which you will get on your knees and pray that you will not then stand up to work to accomplish is an insult to God and a disappointment to yourself, because that's not how prayer works. But of course, getting up from our knees takes courage, doesn't it? Imagine the courage it took for the disciples to follow Jesus. 
They often didn't get it right, but they had the courage to keep trying. Living faithfully requires living courageously. Courage is not an idea or an emotion. It is a way of living. To know fear but not to be controlled by it. Following Jesus means developing courage to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And as parents, if we are courageous, our families become the seedbeds from which courage blossoms in our children. Do you know it has been almost five years since 20 children and six adult staff members were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School? Do you remember the shock and horror of that day? We prayed. We cried out that this should never happen. We promised to write letters and change legislation and provide more mental health care. And yet, just this week, six more people were killed and 10 injured at a school in California. And do you know that in the last five years since Sandy Hook, there have been 113 shooting incidents at schools around the country. There is so much blame to go around for the violence, and yet many of the families who lost their loved ones that day in Newtown, Connecticut, found courage to stand up and organize a nonprofit known as Sandy Hook Promise. Their mission is to prevent gun-related deaths due to crime, suicide, and accidental discharge so that, that no other parents experience that senseless, horrific loss of their children. Well, given the 113 school shootings that have happened since, we might be quick to suggest that their efforts aren't working. And maybe they're not, but maybe what is needed is more of us standing up, moving our feet, having the courage to take on what needs to change. As Jesus said, no blaming, more healing. Perhaps today Jesus and his disciples would have been called upstanders. An upstander is an individual who sees wrong and acts. A person who takes a stand against an act of injustice or intolerance is not a positive bystander. They are an upstander. At the Illinois Holocaust Museum, their exhibits not only remember the atrocities and the survivors, but an entire gallery is dedicated to highlighting those who stood up and continue to stand up. The Goodman Upstander Gallery takes visitors on an interactive exploration of 40 historical and contemporary upstanders who have fought against injustice and stood up for worthy causes, from education and equal rights to economic opportunities, safe communities, health, and the environment. Life-size story portals allow visitors to interact with digital stories of each of these upstanders, enabling visitors to put themselves in the shoes of those heroes and come away inspired to create positive change in the world. Upstanders profiled include many that you would expect, Jane Addams, Susan B. Anthony, Cesar Chavez, Nelson Mandela, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, Gloria Steinem, and Rabbi Stephen S. Weiss. But there are other, less famous, but equally impactful upstanders, including Marley Diaz, a young African-American girl. And here is her story, as just reported in Forbes magazine this week. When Marley Diaz was 11 years old, she was a voracious reader. But she was sick of the books that she was being given in school because, as she'll tell you, they were all about white boys and their dogs. And so she set about changing that. 
In November of 2015, Diaz launched a campaign called Hashtag 1000 Black Girl Books. Her goal was simple, collect and donate 1,000 books that feature black girls as the main character. Today, Diaz has accumulated more than 9,000 books and has landed a book deal of her own. She says, frustration is fuel that can lead to the development of an innovative and useful idea. She said, noting that only after she conducted some research did she realize just how few books had black boys or girls of color as their lead character and how she might not be the only person frustrated by this lack of representation in children's books. I had a lot of choices about how I was going to address this problem, she said. Option one, focus on me. Get myself more books. Have my dad take me to Barnes and Noble and just be done, live my perfect life in suburban New Jersey. Option two, find some authors, beg them to write more black girl books so I'd have some of my own special editions, treat myself a bit, she said. Or option three, start a campaign that collects books with black girls as the main characters, donate them to communities, develop a resource guide to find these books, talk to educators and legislators about how to increase the pipeline of diverse books, and lastly, write my own book. Diaz, of course, went with option three, and her effort is much needed in the world of children's literature. According to an analysis from the Cooperative Children's Book Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, just 8.4% of 3,400 trade books published in the U.S. in 2016 had an African-American main character. The numbers get even smaller when they looked for protagonists of Latino, American Indian, or Asian Pacific descent. Just 55 books, or 1.6, featured a Native American character. 169, or roughly 5%, had a Latino protagonist. And 239, or 7%, were about a character of Asian Pacific descent. This gap hurts us all, Diaz said. I'm working to create a space where it feels easy to include and imagine black girls and make black girls like me the main characters of our lives. Innovation comes from one, acknowledging yourself, two, studying and understanding the problem, and three, finding a solution. It's a typical adventure in a hero story, which now I live today. Out of the mouths of babes, a courageous, determined young girl at that. Study, understand the problem, find a solution. No blaming, just moving her feet. There is much to be healed, much to be fixed, many problems to solve. It can be so overwhelming that we remain on our knees because we think there is nothing that we can possibly do to make an impact. But let Jesus be our guide and perhaps 11-year-old Marley Diaz. Jesus, again and again, he chose to live into the courage of being very different as he crossed the lines of race, gender, religious, deference, ethnicity, expectations, peer pressure, corrupt politicians, and more. And perhaps this prayer from an anonymous author moves us to become upstanders. God, make me brave for life, O oh, braver than this. Let me straighten after pain as the tree straightens after the rain, shining and lovely again. God, make me brave for life, much braver than this. As the blown grass lifts, let me rise from sorrow with quiet eyes, 
knowing your way is wise. God, make me brave. Life brings such blinding things. Help me to keep my sight. Help me to see aright that out of dark comes light. Christians, Jews, Muslims, black, white, Asian, Latino, men, women, adults, and children. This is God's vision of the kingdom of heaven on earth. No blaming. Instead, an inclusive community set out to heal what is broken. Lots of praying on our knees and then standing up together. Let us all toast our glasses of holy wine and witness the power of the splash of overflowing love, bringing Christ's light to our darkened world. May we each be an upstander. Amen.